Zechariah 14, let me read the first five verses and then lead us in prayer. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured. The houses plundered. The women ravished. And half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then... The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move to the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. This is the word of the living God. Would you bow with me? Our Father, what a day that will be. We thank you for the vividness with which you have revealed this picture. And it is not just a painting out of someone's imagination. It is a glimpse of reality in the future. And it is as certain as we are experiencing this moment right now, right here. The Lord is coming and He will reconcile all His people to Himself and He will reign as King. There is no greater hope that we have but that all that is broken will be repaired. And this is the day to which we are pointed. Might you give our hearts joy in this reality today. And might you equip us to live confidently because of this coming day. We pray in the name and Lord of our in name and our in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I've told this story previously and many others have related it as well, but it is appropriate this morning to retell it. I tell you that just so that you don't think I am getting old and senile and I've forgotten that I've already told you, but here we go. In February of 1942, the American war against the Japanese and the Philippines was not going well. It was going so poorly, in fact, that by March the 12th, of 1942, President Roosevelt ordered General Douglas MacArthur, who was stationed in the Philippines, to leave and to relocate his area of command to Australia. 
On that day, MacArthur briefly considered resigning his command and staying in the Philippines to fight as a common soldier, but he was talked out of it by his staff. And so that, that night, March the 12th, 1942, MacArthur left the Philippines. About a week later, on March 20, MacArthur gave what came to be a very well-known speech in Adelaide, Australia, in which he said, I came through and I shall return. That statement emboldened his staff and soldiers as well as the, the people of the Philippines. He promised he would come back to save them. And they believed him. In the weeks and months that followed, though, MacArthur didn't return. And the Japanese seemed to flourish in their battle in the Philippines, and the Americans continued to struggle in the fight. They surrendered first Bataan and then Corregidor in the weeks after MacArthur left. And the people of the Philippines had to wonder, he promised, will he return? On what basis can we be sure that he will return? The Israelites might have asked a similar question after their return to the promised land following their captivity in Babylon. They might have said, God made a promise to Abraham, but that promise has not yet been fulfilled. God promised an eternal kingship to David, but that promise hasn't been fulfilled. We are back from Babylon, but there is still opposition. Will God keep his promise to us of a land, a seed, a people, and a blessing that is to all nations? Will the Messiah come? Will the Messiah ascend to his throne? Zechariah 14 is a resounding yes to those questions. The Messiah will come and will come again. And he will reign and he will do so in dramatic fashion. And in an era before movies and before computer aided graphics, the Lord paints for us an exquisitely vivid picture in Zechariah 14, not only of Messiah's return, but of exactly what that return will look like. And it is designed by God, this picture, to be a hopeful encouragement to the Israelites to persist in faithfulness to Him. You can continue because He will come. He will reign. And as we come to the introduction of Christ's return in Zechariah 14, we are going to find in this chapter and in this section, particularly this simple reality, Christ will come. Y'all need to wake up. <laughs> Christ will come and He will fulfill all His promises to Israel. Not a single promise will be left unmet. Christ will come. God has chosen Israel and He will redeem her. He will protect her 
and liberate her from all oppressors. He will lead her and rule her with wisdom. He will give her from the riches of his glory with great grace. He will be everything a people could want and anticipate in a king. And he will lead her as her king eternally. Both Israel and Zechariah's day. And we today must gain confidence from Christ's return. And what I want you to gain confidence from, particularly today, are three components of Christ's return. Three components of Christ's return. Here is how we might live confidently in a broken world that Christ will return and all will be well. Number one, live confidently A day of the Lord is coming. We are introduced again in chapter 14 to this phrase, that day or the day that is for the Lord. Behold, verse 1, a day is coming for the Lord. I want you to notice, first of all, the nature of the Lord's day. The nature of the Lord's day. That phrase, the day of the Lord appears approximately 20 times in the prophets and it refers to a future day that was a day of God's judgment and or of God's blessing, specifically in relation to the millennial kingdom. The judgment might be something that was coming in the day of the prophet or it could be the future judgment that comes at the end of time right before the millennial kingdom. The prophets had both items in view. So that little phrase, the day of the Lord, refers to judgment and to blessing. Most often in the prophets, it refers to judgment. In Zechariah, most often it refers to the blessing of the millennial kingdom. That little phrase, the day of the Lord, is not used at all by Zechariah, but he does use a different day. He uses the phrase, that day. And he uses that phrase, that day, and we understand from that that he means that day of the Lord that is coming, the end, the judgment, the millennial kingdom. He uses that phrase, that day, 22 times, and he uses it 17 times in chapters 12 to 14, the last oracle, the the declaration that he's making to the nation of Israel. This is their encouragement and their hope, and he points them to that day. And here in verse 1, He uses still a different phrase, not that day, but notice he says, a day is coming for the Lord. And by using the word day, it's clear that he's still thinking about that future millennial day, the day of the millennial kingdom. But he wants us to understand it in a particular way in this context. And he uses a prepositional phrase that is atypical for that phrase the day of the Lord and he says the day for the Lord it's for the Lord he's emphasizing that that day the day of the millennial kingdom of God the day of judgment belongs to God to Yahweh in a particular day it is a day especially for him to be revealed and a day for him to accomplish all of his purposes he will not be denied in what he will do. He cannot be denied and he will be revealed in ways that have not been comprehended previously. 
It will be a day and time that will be of immense benefit to the nation of Israel, but much more than that. And supremely, it isn't about Israel, it is about God. It is about the unfolding of His grace, it is about the unfolding of His glory. On that day, we will see Him in a way that has not been comprehended previously. You want to know what God is like? Look at His day. Anticipate His day. And you will see His revelation in magnanimous and glorious ways. And particularly on that day, you will see the righteousness of His wrath and the glory of His grace. Someone has said, one commentator has said, about that day that is for the Lord to reveal Himself. Man is having His day now. The Lord's day is yet to come. And that's hopeful for us because we look outside and we say, what has come to this world? What has happened to this world? It is so desperately broken. And we read this verse and we say, the Lord's day belongs to Him. It is for Him. It is coming. And we can be safe and we can be sure and we can be confident in Him. And so when Zechariah says, and we say, that the day for the Lord is coming. We're emphasizing the nature of the day in that it is a day for His glory when we see in an unanticipated way His greatness and we enjoy Him. I live confidently a day for the Lord is coming. We need to see the nature of the Lord's day. Secondly, notice the timing of the Lord's day. He says... Zechariah says, verse 1, a day is coming. And what's the natural question? When? Right before the worship service began, I saw a dad with one of his children walking in the back. And the, dad, the, the son is right behind the dad and he's doing this on dad's back. Tap, 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 tap. Son, I know you're there. Right? He didn't say that. I know you're there, but that, that's the dad, 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 when, what, what, wait, why, why? That's, that's what that is. And we want to know, when is it coming? Well, he's told us, at least in part. He hasn't given us the date, but he's told us in part. This section, verses 1 to 5, parallels what he's already said in chapter 12. And we spent a fair bit of time at the first part of chapter 12, thinking about when the day of the Lord is as Zechariah was emphasizing it. And we're reminded that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It's a day of judgment against the nations. It's a day of judgment against the nations that we see revealed in Revelation chapter, starting in chapter 6 all the way through chapter 18, and that's the day of tribulation. That's the day of God's judgment of the outpouring of His wrath against the nations. And during that time, His judgment is not just poured out against the nations, but it's also poured out against the nation of Israel. And we see God's judgment against Israel in these chapters. For instance, in chapter 11, verse 16, Behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing. This is the Antichrist 
who will not care for the perishing, will seek the, will not seek the scattered, will not heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. So that's tribulation talk. That's antichrist. That's all who are opposed to God. So that day includes that. And it culminates in chapter 12, starting in verse 3, in the battle at Armageddon. And it will come about in that day, 12.3, that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples and all who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment, etc. God wins the battle of Armageddon. And so we find that that day is referring to the tribulation and to the battle at the end of the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, and then the culmination of the millennial kingdom, Revelation 20 and following. So when is that day? That day is that future day after the church has been raptured out of this earth. The earth has gone through the seven years of tribulation. The battle of Armageddon against God and Christ has been fought and Christ wins and Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. That's the day. So it's future. It's at least Revelation 14, excuse me, Zechariah 14 is at least seven years away from today. But it is certain. It's coming. And though we don't know exact day and time, what you should hear in that phrase, the day is coming for the Lord, is certainty, a resoluteness. And that gives us confidence that God will address everything that is wrong in the world and will make it right. There's one more thing I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 1 about the day of the Lord, and that is the command of the Lord's day. What's the first word? Behold. Behold. That word is a common interjection in the Old Testament. It's used over a thousand times in the Old Testament. It's used 23 times in the book of Zechariah. It's a word that's intended to draw a reader's attention. It means watch. Look. We might say, if we're on the sporting field, uh, we might say, heads up, watch out, something's coming in. And that's exactly what he wants us to see. Something is coming. Be attentive, be watchful. The Lord is calling the readers and us to be attentive to what he will do. He wants us to be anticipating the culmination of his divine plan for his people in that day. And the Lord's people have always been doing that, have always been watching. You hear it in the laments of the psalmists when they ask the question, how long, O Lord, when will you come? Peter tells us that the prophets searched carefully looking for Christ and the future glories of Christ in the prophecies they were giving. Simeon anticipated it right after Jesus was born, Luke chapter 2. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. God said, behold, look, 
watch. And he was looking. You hear it in the question of the disciples at Christ's ascension. Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now is a time. You even see it in the groaning of creation. Romans chapter 8. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, we also ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, the whole breaking of, of nature. Three months with one seventeenth of an inch of rain. Three and a half months. And you're saying, when, Lord, will you fix this broken creation? That's creation in its drought, groaning that the Lord hasn't come yet. And we also groan with creation and with the longings. And so the Lord is reminding us that He has revealed something to us about the future to which we should be attentive and looking forward and anticipating and being hopeful. It's coming. Listen, no season in the history of the world is definitive except the final season, the day of Christ's return. So Israel and we should be attentive to that day, hopeful and confident in it. The day that is for the Lord is coming. As you look, be confident. This week, Regine ordered something on Amazon. It was a gift to give to someone else. And on the day of delivery, you know, they send you a little notification on Amazon. Your package is out for delivery. And uh, expect it in this time frame. Oh, great, great. I'll watch for it. And somewhere about halfway through that time frame, there's another notification. This is my paraphrase. Oops. It's not out for delivery. Something happened. Look for it on September 8 and 9. If it doesn't come for the 10th, until the 10th, you can apply for a refund. And I did what my brother over there is doing, going, oh, great. I told Regine, just order something else. Whenever they send that notification, it never shows up. Just give it up. Get something else. It showed up Friday. <laughs> oh, brothers and sisters. No, the Lord has not come back yet. Don't give up hope. He's coming. He will come. The day that is for Him that will unfold His glory like we have never seen it before will come. It's delayed. It's not stopped. He's coming. Live confidently. Secondly, live confidently. A day of gathering is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. We've noted that when Zechariah uses that term, the day of the Lord, he is particularly focused on the blessings that come from the day of the Lord, particularly the millennial kingdom. But there's also judgment associated with that day, including judgment for Israel. 
And he draws attention to that at the back half of verse 1 and into verse 2. On that day, at the end of the tribulation, he says, Spoil will be taken from you and will be divided among you. When there is a war, the victor gets the spoils. They get the blessings. They get the bounty of whatever was in that country and they claim it for their own and they take it away. And the history of Israel is a history of that reality. Nations have come in, they plundered, they grabbed the spoil, and they took off all the best possessions. But notice what he says here. The spoil will be taken from you, you will lose. And you will lose your possessions. And they will be divided among you. That doesn't mean you get it back. That means they will sit down in front of you and divide it amongst themselves. And you will watch them. Divide up your stuff. That means at least two things. One, Israel will be powerless to do anything to resist and fight back against the nations. The loss will be devastating. The plunder will be likewise devastating. It's also, secondly, that the nations will stay and inhabit the land. They don't grab it and go. They grab it and stay, which means there is ongoing subjugation, ongoing conquest, ongoing suffering. It's unrelenting. It will be a terrible time for Israel, filled with loss and subjugation. And as if verse 1 isn't enough, notice the middle of verse 2. The city will be captured... The houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled. Now we know that Israel will fight and will win. We saw that in 12.3. We see it in 12.6. In that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves so that they will consume on the right hand and on the left all of the surrounding people while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. So victory's coming, but not on that day. There's plunder that's relentless, much loss for Israel. There will be one last Apparent victory for the nations and one last apparent loss for Israel. And it will not be a small loss. It'll be brutal. Unless you think it's unjust. Notice what Jeremiah says about this day. Jeremiah chapter 30. He writes this in verse 7, verse 5 through verse 7. Jeremiah 35 to 7. Thus says the Lord, I've heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, For that day is great and there is none like it 
And it is the time of Jacob's distress. It is the time of Jacob's suffering, of Jacob's distress. Now, Jeremiah does note in the last line of that section, but he will be saved from it. There is justice, though, in that distress. And the Lord alludes to that in Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, God set out the promises of blessing for the nation of Israel. If you, if you obey me, I will bless you. And if you disobey me, I will curse you. And those three chapters become pivotal in the life of the history of Israel. And what we have going on in these first two verses in Zechariah 14 is the final fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28. He says in 28:15, it shall come about that if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and the statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed will you be in the city. And cursed will you be in the country. And then on it goes through verse 29 and 30. The Lord will smite you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of heart. And you will grope at noon as a blind man gropes in darkness. And you will not prosper in your ways. But you shall be oppressed and robbed continually with none to save you. That's verse 1 of Zechariah 14. Verse 30, you will betroth a wife, but another man will violate her. You will build a house, but you will not live in it. You will plant a vineyard, but you will not use its fruit. That's verse 2. It is the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. I've told you and told you and told you. If you disobey me, you will experience my wrath and my judgment. And that is what's happening on that day that is for the Lord. But notice that the domination of the nations in that day will be partial and temporary. End of the verse. Half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off. There is a remnant and they will be spared. Yes, God will pour out his judgment on Israel, but he will spare the remnant. Part of the day of the Lord is a winnowing of Israel. It is a reminder that while the nation is his promised people, not all individual Israelites will be saved until the day of final repentance that we saw in 1210. When all individuals will repent. But until that day. Not all individuals will. And those individuals who reject God. And reject Christ. And reject their Messiah. And reject the cross. They will endure God's wrath against them. It's a sober reminder. About the serious reality of God's wrath. We saw it last week in 13.8. It will come about in the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish. It's a similar picture of the cutting off of the disobedient and the rebellious. Israel was warned, and we have been warned, they must repent 
to avoid His wrath. And we must repent to avoid His wrath. But when they repent, there is much grace and much forgiveness. 13.1 In that day, the fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. If you repent and if you turn away from your sin, God will wash it all away and cleanse you. My friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to hear the weight of the wrath of God and His coming judgment. If you're not a believer in Christ, you cannot escape Him. You will not escape Him unless you repent. And if you repent and if you turn to Christ in faith, He will open His fountains of blessing and forgiveness and wash you from your sin and cleanse you so that you can be with Him and be liberated from your sin. Oh friend, if you're not a believer, would you turn away from your sin today and turn to Christ in faith and ask Him to save you and redeem you from your sin? Before we leave this verse, I want you to notice one more crucial phrase that's at the beginning and that I skipped. The spoil will be taken from you, will be divided among you for, because I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The events of verses 1 and 2 are not outside of God's plan. They are His plan. They are not accidental. God's not saying, oh, I don't know what's going to happen and what am I going to do? The nations showed up. No. He summoned them. He will call them to come. He is bringing the nations All the nations. A lot of commentators spent way too much time trying to figure out, like, is every nation and every soldier and every nation on all the earth going to come against Israel? That's not what that means. It just means there's a totality of the world against Israel on that day. And everyone in the world will be pointed against Israel. And a representative army that's gathered from around the world will come to fight against Israel. And on that day, the nations will laugh and say, this is it. Finally, we get rid of this obnoxious nation, Israel. Let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast their cords away from against us. We're done. We're done with the Messiah. We're done with the Christ. We're done with Israel. We're done with God's people. We're going to wipe them off the earth finally. And the text says, God gathered them for that purpose. Why? So that in one swift, consummate battle, He can destroy His opposition forever so psalm 2 
from which I just wrote, read a moment ago when the nations are counseling together against the Christ. The psalmist says, verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord scoffs at them and he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That's this day where he's gathering the nations together to say, I will win. And the battle to which he is summoning them is to the battle of Armageddon that we see in Revelation chapter 16, in which they will be swiftly and completely defeated. Brothers and sisters, hear this day of gathering as a point of confidence. Israel doesn't lose. God doesn't lose. This is his divine plan to demonstrate his victory over the nations. One final component of Christ's return that I want you to see this morning. And that is to live confidently because a day of return is coming. A day of return is coming. And in verse 3, part of that return means that the Lord is coming to judge The Lord is coming to judge. Verse 3 is another one of those verses that are immensely comforting to God's people and wholly discomforting to those who are opposed to Him. Then, the word in Hebrew is actually just and, it's a simple connective But sometimes it carries a different weight than just and. Kind of like in conversation you might be having with someone. Like I might have had with Regine the other day. And I say, don't bother ordering or don't, don't, don't wait for that package. Order another package. Order another item. And she says, and what do you think is going to happen? That's this verse. And. Then the Lord, Yahweh, right when Yahweh has the nations exactly where he wants them, it says he will go forth and fight. We don't think about this often, but God is a God of war. He's a battler. He fights, Exodus 15, 3, and he wins every battle. We might give this sense to the verse. God will on that day fight against the nations like his usual fighting. What is it going to look like on that day when God fights against the nations? Oh, it's going to look like it always looks whenever he fights. And we've seen glimpses of that in this book. Chapter 9, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach with Damascus as its resting place and Hamath, which also borders on it entire and Sidon. For the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea. 
Verse 14 of chapter 9, Then the Lord will appear over them, and His arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord will blow forth a trumpet and will march in the storm in the winds of the south, and the Lord of hosts will defend them, Israel, and they will devour and trample on the sling stones, and they will drink and be boisterous with wine, and they will be filled with a sacrificial basin, drenched like the corners of the altar, and the Lord will save them. On that day. And on and on and on and on. The Lord will fight. And this battle. On this day. The battle of Armageddon. Will be a particularly vicious battle. We have a glimpse of it. In Revelation chapter 14. When it speaks about the battle. It says in verse 20. Revelation 14, the winepress was was trodden outside the city and the blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. That means the slaughter was so great, the blood is splattered up and it's splattered up from those who are on the ground as high as the bridles over a distance of 200 miles. It's astoundingly immense. Revelation 19, we have the clear picture of it. When God comes to fight, verse 11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges, he wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Remember that line, the armies are following him. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. The nations will be destroyed. The beast and the false prophet will be bound And thrown into the lake of fire and Satan will be bound for a thousand years through the millennial kingdom. And brothers and sisters, on that day, Zechariah 14.3, there will be no more opposition to God. It's done. He will be fully victorious. He is victorious already on that day. It will be seen to be sure. Part of our struggle in this life is the seeming victory of sin and the seeming victory of unrighteousness. You just see it every day, don't you? You open the newspaper, you see the news flash on your phone notifications and you just hang your head. It's another example of unrighteousness, of sin. And on that day, the Lord will speak. And it will be over. This arrival of the warrior Christ is seen as an encouragement to us. In that sin and sinners will be treated with righteousness. And no aspect of sin will win. 
Romans 12, 19, where God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, it is true. And it will be seen true on that day. God will be righteously vengeful. The Lord is coming. He's coming to judge and sin will be eradicated. A second aspect of his coming, the Lord is coming to liberate. I can hardly read this verse without tearing up. And in that day, the day that he fights, the day that he wins, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Sidebar, totally unrelated, but cool fact about Christ. Sometimes you wonder, is Christ given up as humanity or is he still the eternal God-man? He is still the eternal God-man and he will come in bodily form and his bodily feet will hit the Mount of Olives. He is still the God-man, Jesus Christ, interceding for us. And when he comes... He will come to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a, is a place of some significant events in Israel's history. It is the place through which David fled from Absalom. It was the place where King Zedekiah attempted to flee from the Babylonians. It is the place over which the glory of God departed from the temple when it left the temple in Ezekiel. It is the place where Jesus prayed before the crucifixion. It was the place of his agony and it was the place of his arrest. And it was the place that this happened. Jesus and the disciples. And he says to them, you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And they're doing exactly what you and I would do. They kept looking. In astoundment. Astonishment. What had just happened. And as they're gazing intently into the sky. While he was going, behold. Two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, fulfilling that prophecy in Acts Chapter 1. He will come back just as He promised. And brothers and sisters, there's going to be drama that day. When His feet hit the mountain, it will be split from east to west. The Mount of Olives is directly to the east of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is that big, large area in the middle of the screen. Underneath it at the bottom is the Valley of Hinnom. Immediately to the east of Jerusalem is the Kidron Valley. And on the other side of the Kidron Valley, right to the edge of that map is the Mount of Olives. You might be able to read that on the side there. 
So the Mount of Olives. And Jesus will come and touch his feet. And a valley will be formed. And not just will a valley be formed, but the mountains will move. It's going to be astounding. The Kidron Valley and the Valley of Hinnom create a barrier for the nation of Israel. So that when the nations have come into the city, there's no means of egress. There's no way to get out safely. They have no escape. There's just this valley that if they go north, they go into the people that have subjugated them. If they go south, they got to go back west and back to the people that have subjugated them. They can't go over the Mount of Olives. It's too hard. It's too difficult to get over. It's too, um, too strenuous. They're trapped. And God says, let me show you a way out. And so the nations, verse 1, have come in and they've divided up the spoil and they've stayed and they've conquered. And Christ comes and sets his feet on the mountain and the mountain splits in two and this massive valley opens up and the people run to safety. They run, he says, all the way to Azel. That's not Azel in Fort Worth. It's a different Azel. We don't actually know where this one is. But it is on the other side of the mountain, undoubtedly, to the east. It's a place of safety. It's going to be a dramatic day. Zechariah tries to capture the sense of it. And he says, it's going to be as dramatic as the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. We don't really know anything about that, except Amos refers to it also in Amos 1.1. We don't know anything about it other than it was it was sufficient enough and dramatic enough that it was fixed in their collective memory. And Jesus says, excuse me, Zechariah says, God says through Zechariah, it's going to be just as dramatic as that, except even more. And they will flee. And what I want you to see in this, that in his coming, the Lord is liberating his people. The remnant of is freed. They're not trapped. They're not subjugated. Christ will literally set them free. There's something else that goes on in that valley. That valley is a means of escape for the people of Israel. And it's a place of judgment for the nations. Joel chapter 3 In those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations. Sound familiar? And I will bring them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The valley of Jehoshaphat. The word name Jehoshaphat means God judges. So that valley of escape for the people becomes a valley of judgment for the nations. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they've scattered among the nations. They've divided up my land. They've cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, sold a girl for wine that they may drink. That's verse 2. They've taken all the spoils. They've subjugated the people. And I will judge them. And he says... The judgment, verse 9, proclaim this among the nations. 
prepare a war, rouse the mighty men, let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up, gather yourselves here, let the nations be aroused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat where I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe, come tread for the winepress is full, the vats overflow because their wickedness is great, multitudes multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. He will judge. He liberates and then he frees them from sin and judges sin and unrighteousness. In every way, the people are liberated. No longer will the nations persecute And no longer will the false prophets lead them astray. They will be freed. And even more, the Lord is coming to reign. Then the Lord, Yahweh, my God, will come. It's a reiteration of verse 4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Then my, the Lord, my God, will come. Why does he just repeat what he's just said? For the same reason that you do when you have a new grandbaby. We've got a grandbaby. You want to see the picture? You want to see another one? You want to see another one? You want to see the whole roll? Why do you do that? Because excitement has overwhelmed you. And he says it again. Because he is absolutely overwhelmed by the amazement of the good news. There may be something else going on here as well. Notice verse 4. Zechariah says that he will come and he will stand on the Mount of Olives. So he's outside of the city. And now verses 5 and following, we're going to find him inside of the city. And so maybe Zechariah is also saying, not just has he come to the city, but he's come in the city. He's here and he is with us. Notice this as well. He says, then the Lord, my God, will come. This, this This is intensely personal to Zechariah. And it's also a reiteration of exactly what God has said in verse 9 of chapter 13. I will bring a third part of them, the remnant, through the fire. I'll refine them. I will test them. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. And I will say they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. And that is exactly what Zechariah says. The Lord is mine I belong to him and he belongs to me. God has restored everything that has gone wrong. Nothing can separate us from the Lord again. We're his and we're safe. And notice this. When the Lord comes, he won't come alone. And all the holy ones, he says, with him. What's the most dominant name for God in the book of Zechariah? He is the Lord of hosts. That word is used about, phrase is used about 250 times in the Old Testament. It's used 50 times in the book of Zechariah. 
This Zechariah is about the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, the armies in heaven, the armies on earth, the armies under the earth. There's no army that is outside the bounds of his control. And so when he says the Lord comes and he brings his holy ones with him, he means he's bringing his army. They're all coming with him. That almost certainly means that he's bringing his heavenly hosts, his angelic beings. That's what, that's what John said in Revelation 19. But it probably means even more than that. Not just that he's bringing the angelic hosts. It means that he's bringing all believers with him as well. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. It says in verse 13, uh, Now may God our Father also Himself and Jesus Christ our Lord direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in your love for one another just as we also love you so that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. So he comes with the army of the angelic beings and he comes with the army of his redeemed people. Heaven is emptied and he comes with all of his people on that day to reign and rule with him as he establishes his Davidic throne. And the rest of the chapter is the outflow of Christ reigning. Whatever difficulties were in Israel in Zechariah's day, And whatever hardships we know now, the King is coming and all will be well. We can be confident of that. We must live confidently because of that. At the beginning of the sermon, I left Douglas MacArthur in Australia in 1942. On the afternoon of October 20th, 1944, two and a half years after he left, MacArthur walked onto the beach of Leyte in the Philippines. And while the Japanese would not be completely defeated for another nine to ten months, the end was in sight. And in a speech that afternoon, he said this, People of the Philippines, I have returned By the grace of Almighty God, our forces stand again on Philippine soil, soil consecrated in the blood of our two peoples. We have come dedicated and committed to the task of destroying every vestige of enemy control over your daily lives and of restoring upon a foundation of indestructible strength the liberties of your people. He did that, kind of. He's not indestructible. And he has not restored it permanently. Ah, but there's a king who's coming who will. And in an infinitely greater way, Almighty God has revealed the return of his son to be our king. He has promised. And the day that is for the Lord is coming. You have trouble in this world. Your trouble is not the final word. The final word is the return of Christ. 
because he will return and because his feet will rest on the Mount of Olives and because he will make a valley of escape for Israel and because he will make a valley of judgment for the nations and because he will return and walk into Jerusalem and set up his throne and reign on David's throne in Jerusalem, we can be confident that he will come and that we are safe. Live in light of that confidence. Our Father, we thank you for the hope of Christ's return. And when we say hope, we don't mean wishes and dreams. We mean certainty. He is coming. He is safe. We are safe. Satan is doomed. Might we rest in that for all the things that pull at us and are troublesome to us. Might we rest, be confident in what you will do on the day Christ returns. We pray in his name. Amen.